We're in the middle of a deal on the Sermon on the Mount. Got my stuff in order. Um, a couple of a couple of quick announcements. Um, this afternoon at five o'clock, a lady named Mary Fisher. She works with the Christian Missionary Alliance in Australia. She's been a seminary professor. She's been a missionary in China for eight years. She's going to be here doing a little roundtable deal, I would say. If you're interested in long-term missions or um, church planting somewhere in your future, it would be worth your time to come. So that's 5 o'clock here. I think there'll be some type of things to eat. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but we're hosting her. So y'all come on with that at 5 o'clock. And this Tuesday at 6, um, we're having a ministry greenhouse. That's this weird name for this thing that we do. Our my heart is to help people get at what's in their heart. I believe God's put something in everyone's heart to do. And I feel like my job is to help you get there. And these ministry greenhouses are places where we try to uncover those things that are in your heart and move forward. And I would say this Tuesday, if you consider Stonebridge your home church, or if you think at some point in the future it might be your home church, you need to come. Um, I'm going to be sharing some things that I think will be um, that will set direction for us for the next um, six months to 12 months, and I would like for you to come. Well, we'll do a covered dish dinner, and we've got child care. So, and we'll be done about 8 or 8.15 if that helps you plan. There's a sign-up sheet out there in the lobby, or you can email us um, if you need to do that. Matthew 5, we're going to look at a big chunk from 17 through 48, but we're going to break it up into kind of bite-sized pieces. So here's the first few verses. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's a big key right there, that I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's kind of a controlling thought for everything we're going to talk about today. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that verse is the second kind of controlling thought. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've heard this before. If you were hearing this for the first time and you were on this mountain and Jesus is talking, you heard that for the first time, and you heard that last verse I just read. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. You would have automatically said, well, I guess I'm out. The scribes and the Pharisees were the best at keeping the law. Nobody else was close. That's why they were scribes and Pharisees. That's part of what made them who they were, was they kept the law better than anyone else kept the law. So for Jesus to say, you've got to do better than them, you're not going to do that. You've got to play golf better than Tiger Woods if you want. That's what he's saying. You've got to do better than the best if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what they heard. That's, we're going to look at this a little bit, but that's what they heard. So your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. When, let me just set this up. I'm going to take a while to set it up, and then we're going to hit some of these specifics pretty quickly. That If you've got a Bible with little subheadings, it probably says murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, eye for an eye, those kind of, all of those things are just specifics of this kind of general principle that we're going to talk about. So I'm going to take some time to set up the general deal, and then we're going to move through the specifics pretty quick 
towards the end. When you read the word law in the New Testament, what you need to think about is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When you read law, usually that's what it's referring to, and specifically it's referring to the rules that are laid out in those five books. Most of those are in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. There's some in Numbers as well. That's when you read law, that's what you need to hear. Um, Sometimes we think the way the law worked, what we talked last week about coming in the kingdom of heaven, when we talked about the kingdom of heaven, it's not a place, it's the rule and reign of God, and we enter it by grace. Sometimes I think we believe that the way the Jews entered the kingdom of heaven, the way they came through the door was by following the law. You've got to keep these rules, and if you keep these rules, then you get in. That's not the case. God has always dealt with people based on grace. He picked Abraham, you can read that in Genesis 12, out of everybody because he picked Abraham out of everybody, not because there's anything special about him. It was his grace in choosing Abraham, and then this whole nation of Israel comes from him. It's always been grace. There's never been a time where God has said, perform for me. That's not how he works. So don't think that keeping the law gets you in. It does. It's different, and let me try to set that up. The Old Testament sometimes also called the Old Covenant. In the Old Testament, you'll read there's several different covenants, these kind of treaties, for lack of a better word, that God would make with people. The one that we're going to talk about is called the Sinaitic Covenant. You don't care what it's called. It's because Moses got the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So it's Sinai with the A-T-I-C at the end. It's how you pronounce that. Or it's called the Old Covenant. And that's, again, all the stuff we just talked about. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's got like the top ten, don't murder, don't steal. And it's also got don't wear clothes made out of two different types of material. And the whole thing is in there. And that's and what God said, you can go, we don't have time. You can look at Deuteronomy 28 if you want to kind of get a synopsis of this. What God said is, if you keep these rules, then I'm going to do all this for you. And he lists about 12 verses of blessings. You're going to be the head, not the tail. You're going to, I'm going to bless you. You're going to prosper. You're going to have land. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to provide for you, protect you, the whole deal. If you'll, this is your part. If you'll do your part, I'm going to do all these things for you. And then about halfway through, he says, but if you don't, then I'm not going to do those things for you. In fact, the opposite of those things is going to happen to you. So that's a covenant. God says, this is my part, and this is your part. You hold up your end of the deal, I'll hold up my end of the deal. They entered the covenant by grace. God chose them, called them into this covenant. He did not have to make one with them. But once they're in there, you know, they kind of there are terms of agreement here, and these are the terms. You guys follow the rules, I'll be your God. You guys don't follow the rules, and I'm going to punish you for not following the rules. Do you agree to that? And they all say yes, and you can go back and you can read that. So that's the setup for this old covenant. And it's the law, which is synonymous with the old covenant, was Israel's part. This is what the people are supposed to do to stay in, to stay in right relationship with God. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you realize pretty quickly they didn't do a very good job. Judges is a train wreck, and from there it's pretty much all downhill. They can't. They screw up all the time. In fact, while Moses is getting the rules on Mount Sinai, they're making an idol, a golden calf, during the same time. They never did it. The whole Old Testament is a cycle of the people screwing up, God saying you've messed up, the people repenting, and God giving them another chance. That's it. Hundreds and hundreds of years of the same thing. There are a few bright spots, but for the most part, it's a steady downhill. The people can't do it. And at one point, it gets so bad... God does the second half of Deuteronomy 28, if you want to look that up, he actually does all of those curses. He says, I'm done. I'm kicking you out of the land. He pulls his 
presents from the temple and the people are just left. They got nothing. After 70 years in his grace, he brings them back. They rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. That's in Ezra and Nehemiah if you want to go look that up. But they never kind of get back to their glory days. They never get where it was that they were trying. They never get back to this national prominence. They're always a small country. They're always under someone else's rule, under domination by someone else. They never really experience the full blessings. So that's kind of the setup. There are a couple of glimpses in the Old Testament that God wants to do something new. This is Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So there you go. There's an old one, and he's making a new one. The time is with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will not remember their sins or, and will remember their sins no more. So I want you to, the only thing I want you to hear out of that is what God, God is doing is he's saying, I'm going to take the law from out here and I'm going to push it in. And I'm going to write it on your mind and I'm going to write it on your heart. So the law that is this, it's external, it's this, all of these rules, I'm going to take it and I'm going to shove it into you. I'm going to shove it into my people. No one's going to have to teach them anymore because it's going to be here and it's going to be here and I'm the one that's going to put it there. That We'll come back to that. So just get that. You've got an old covenant that's external. It's this list, all of these rules. And what God is saying is that's not working. And so I'm going to push, I'm going to push this in to my people. Now, during the time between the Old Testament and New Testament, in your Bible, it's, it's one page. It's actually 400 years. And during this time, what went on is there's a group of people that came to prominence called the Pharisees. They were religious leaders. And what they said was, if the key to remaining in God's good graces is to keep the law, then we got to get really good at that. It makes total sense. If what God wants for us, if the reason we were punished, the reason we were kicked out of our land, the reason that we're being oppressed by this Roman government, if the reason that's happening is because we don't do a good job of keeping the rules, then we need to do a better job of keeping the rules. And so they set out to figure out, let's find out everything we got to know about the rules. Let's turn this old covenant inside out. So they found 613 laws in the old covenant. I think there's 365 things you can't do and 248 you can. That might be reversed. But there's 613 rules. And they memorized those and they, you know, wore them on their head and on their tassels and they knew this stuff and they taught other people. But what they said is it's so important for us to keep the law, we need to make extra double sure that we never break it. So they did this thing called building a fence around the law. One of the top ten, don't do work on the Sabbath. You've got to take a day where you don't work. Now, God never really explains what he means by that. What's work? What's not work? And what the Pharisees said, it was that ding, ding, ding. That's the problem. So what they did is they came up with all of these other rules. And that Jesus refers to it as the tradition of the elders. All these guidelines for how to not do work on the Sabbath. So they decided walking a mile, well, that's work. So what they said to make sure you never blew it because they didn't have pedometers was you can't walk three-fourths of a mile. That way, in case you ever overstep, you still haven't crossed the line. You see what I'm saying? There's a rule that says, there's a law that says you don't boil a kid, a baby goat, in its mother's milk. Whatever, I don't get it, but that's one of the rules. So what they said was, to make sure you never do that, you've got to have two sets of dishes. 
You've got to have meat dishes and dairy dishes, pots. And kosher homes still do the same thing. They've got a set of dishes for their dairy and a set of dishes for their meat. That way they never break the rule. That's building a fence around the law. You don't want your kid to run in the street. Well, you never let them out the front door. Then they're never going to get in the street. That's what the Pharisees did. And they got really good at it. And these things are called traditions of the elders. So there's already 613 rules that regular folks have to follow. And they piled on huge, huge amounts of stuff on top of them. If you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus referring to, you know, you put a heavy load on men's backs and you don't raise a finger to help them. That's caused, There were so many rules that regular people just quit. They just gave up. These guys, 12-hour days in the field to put food on the table, but then to have to keep track of 613 laws God has plus the however many hundreds that the religious leaders are telling them, it's too much. So most people were hopeless. They're, they're never getting in. So when they hear my righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, they're like, are you kidding me? I can't even get up to their level, much less surpass them. There's too much stuff to keep up with. Let me see if I can illustrate that. Kim, she doesn't have to go outside this week. She just stay right here. So let's just say that out of all of the, all of this, the tradition of the elders and the old covenant, all 613 laws, plus all of the traditions that the rabbis have tacked on, Whatever that number is, all of those commands, we're going to sum it up in one because we are that good. And it is keep this shoe clean. God's desire is for us to walk with Him. So to walk with Him, you got to have good shoes. And so Kim's responsibility is just to keep this shoe up. She's got to keep it clean. She's got to keep it up. That's it. Now, Kim's family has known this rule for a really long time and they have done a very poor job of actually keeping it. They've never been able to do it. She's had this in her family line. Generations of people have known in order to walk with God, if I want God to be my God, then I've got to keep my shoes clean. Every one of them has failed. And so what has happened is helpful people have come around because they've recognized the failure and they've said things like, well, this is what it means to keep the shoe clean. You've got to have the laces and they know how much gap you've got to have between this last little hole and this thing and you've got to keep whatever those things are called. I eyelets, something. You've got to keep those perfect and you can only have this much wear on their shoe and it's got to wear this way and if the tread gets too um, worn out, it doesn't work and your tongue has to be positioned just so with just these words showing and centered right. And so there's all of these rules that have been built up around Kim keeping her shoe clean and she knows them. Your, your bow, it's right over left, not left over right when you're crossing and the bows have to be a certain... Um, whateverness, roundness, all of this stuff. That's what she knows and that's what she's trying to do. If she wants to stay in a good relationship with God, if she wants to walk with God, if she wants God to be her God, she's got to keep this shoe up. Except there's one problem. Her hands are dirty. Does Kim have any chance at keeping that shoe clean? She can have all the rules, all the regulations. She can know everything about what God wants. They've got to be tied this way. Every is, Does she have any chance? Why? Because her hands are filthy. They're covered in chocolate sauce. Every time she tries to do the right thing, she's actually making it worse. Every time she tries to follow the law, she's breaking the law. She has no shot 
at keeping those shoes clean. Her only choices are to give up or to say God doesn't really care. That's it. Because she can't follow the law. And that's the situation everyone who's ever been born is in. God has said, this is what I want for you. And we can have all the rules and all the regular... We can figure it out. We can have rules on top of rules to help us. We can fence in the law. But the problem is, we've got chocolate sauce all over our hands. And every time we touch anything, it gets dirty. What Kim needs... is somebody to clean her hands off. This is Ezekiel 36. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. That's the deal. The Pharisees didn't get it. The reason your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees is because it has to get in here. Wicked trees produce wicked fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. Period. There are people in this room, that's what your shoes look like. You're trying as hard as you can. You can't do any more than you're doing. You know the rules and you're trying your best to follow them. You're trying to pray and you're coming to church and you're trying to love your spouse. You're trying to do all of these things that you know God wants you to do. The problem is you've got chocolate sauce all over your hands and you're going to fail every single time. It's not that you need to try harder. You need a new heart. And Jesus says He'll give you one. He'll give you a new heart. And then that changes everything. We've said a thousand times, what is in your heart eventually comes out. What's in here comes out of here. If the the root is bad, the fruit's bad. If the root's good, the fruit is good. All of us are born with bad roots because we're people. We're all born with wicked hearts. The only thing that will enable you to keep your shoes clean is to get a new one. I don't care how nice a person you are. I don't care how much willpower you have. I don't don't care. You've got to have a new heart. That's the new covenant. It's not, never mind, you don't have to do any of that stuff. It's, I'm going to give you a new heart so you can. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He enables us to do the things that he says. Again, I think there are I'm convinced there are people in this room. That's you. You might have been in church for 25 years and you've been doing it on your own, trying as hard as you can to do the things that God says to do. And you, you're, you're trying and you're doing pretty good. But your hands have chocolate sauce all over them. And ultimately, your righteousness isn't going to exceed that of the, the scribes and Pharisees. It's the same. It's external it never gets in here, and until you get a new heart, you got no shot. It's verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, that means um, empty head, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. 
Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you'll not get out until you've paid the last penny. And you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I think both these things are really, those are specific examples of this point that we just made. It doesn't make sense that calling someone an idiot and killing them is the same. Or that thinking about something with a woman and doing things with that woman are the, like, how are those things the same? How is the punishment the same for both of those things? And what Jesus is doing is he's pushing back and saying, it's not just about what you do. God looks at your heart. And the same heart condition that causes you to call someone an idiot, it's the same thing that causes you to kill somebody. And the same heart condition that causes you to think certain things about women causes you to actually do those things with women. The heart condition is the same. It just hasn't manifested in your behavior yet. And that's what God is looking at. And what he's saying is, you can't, the solution there, if your hand causes you to sin, you've got to cut the thing off. You have to cut it off. That's the root problem of your sin. You've got to get rid of it. If your eye causes you to sin, you've got to get rid of it. We have this thing, some people call it the gospel of sin management, where we try to build fences around the sin in our own life. If you've ever been maybe like you're in high school or college, if you've ever tried to do Christian dating, that's all that is. We want to find out where's the line, how far is too far. And then whatever your youth pastor, whoever decides how far too far is, then what we do is we set up all these fences around it. Well, I can't be alone with my girlfriend after 10 at night on odd-numbered evenings, or we can't interlock fingers or only side hugs, or whatever you decide, their rules are to keep you from falling into temptation. You're trying to fence, you're building a fence around the law. Well, this is how far too far is, and so I'm going to put all these rules around it to make sure I don't mess up. You cannot fence in sin. Genesis 4-7, the first murder that we know of, Cain and Abel, God says to sin is crouching at the door. Crouching at the door, waiting to master you. James 1-14 says, the reason you sin is because the evil desires in here, you're enticed by them. You can't put a fence around, you can't put a fence around your heart. And you know anyone, if you've tried, this is something guys do all the time. If you've tried, it doesn't work. I don't care how many net nanny internet filters you get, it's not enough. You've got to pluck it out if it's causing the problem. You've got to cut it off if it's causing the problem. You've got to get a new heart. That's the problem. You can't fence that thing in. You can't create enough rules that to cover every situation. You will fail every time. You might have a lot of willpower and you might be really smart and you might be able to go a really long time, but eventually, sin's crouching at the door, waiting to master you. The solution is to get a new heart. It's not to try to tame your evil desires, it's to get rid of them. And only Jesus can do that. You don't fence in sin, you kill it. It's what you do. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This obviously is a big kind of hot button issue in the church. Y'all know the same stats I do. 
Christians divorced at the same or higher numbers than non-Christians. Just real quick, yes, there are biblical grounds for divorce. There's three. Adultery, it's in Matthew 19. Abandonment, that's in 1 Corinthians 7. And neglect, that's in Exodus 21, 9 and 10. And abuse is a severe form of neglect. So that's, that's what you've got. You've got three biblical grounds. Adultery, abandonment, and neglect with, ab- with abuse being a severe form of neglect. What Jesus does in Matthew 19, though, is he points to the root of divorce and says it's because of hardness of heart that Moses said you can divorce. So really, the issue is the hardness of heart. That's it. And if you're a Christian, you have a new heart now. It's not hard anymore. It's soft. So it shouldn't happen among us. Now, are there cases where there are two Christians and one of them's heart does grow hard and they let Yes, that happens. That happens, and that's why there are grounds. If some person in a marriage gets a hard heart and goes off and does something, well, okay. But that's not how it should be. In the church, there's none. Because none, we all have new hearts here. Our hearts are all soft. We don't have these stone hearts, which are the root cause of divorce. So I would say to this, to those of you who are married in the room, if you're struggling in your marriage, the thing is to look here and say, is my heart growing hard towards my spouse or towards the Lord? Period. I don't care what they're doing. I'm caring right here. You can't control that. You, this is your thing. Is my heart growing hard towards the Lord or towards them? And if the answer is yes, fix it. Because that's ultimately, that's what leads to breakups. It's hardness of heart. You can't control their heart either. You're responsible for your own. If their heart's hard and they're done, that, that's why there's reasons. I'm talking about you. And if you're already looking for ways to get out, that's an indication that your heart's probably getting hard. If things are difficult and you're wondering, well, how, what, how can I get out, God? You're probably done. And you need to look at that. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't break your oath, but keep the oaths you've made to the Lord. But I tell you, don't swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head. For you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. We live here. Good is great and great is awesome and awesome is the best thing I've ever seen in the world. And if I, if I want you to really understand me, I've got to say, I promise. No, I really swear. Really, really, really mean it this time. We exaggerate everything. And the reason we exaggerate... Hold on, I've got to get something to drink. I'm sorry. The reason we exaggerate is because we don't have any integrity. Our words don't have any credibility. And so we've got to put all these qualifiers in front of them. No, this is really, really the total truth as opposed to the partial truth I told you the other day. This is 100% accurate. We do it all, and it's marketing and it's advertising and it's spin and it's the culture that we live in, but the bottom line is our words don't mean anything. And so when we're really serious... We've got to put all these words in front of it so you know. I'm not just blowing smoke this time. The same thing is true when we describe things. We overhype and we oversell and it's just a, it's what we do. And I would just say if you tend to overhype, just don't. It's an integrity issue. Just don't. Good is good. It doesn't have to be great because there are things that are great and good things aren't great. They're good. If they were great, you would call them great. So let the words mean what they mean. If you, in order to convey a point, 
If you've got to do the I really swear, pinky swear on the Bible, my mother, if you've got to do all that stuff, you have an integrity problem. If you've got to go that far in order for someone to believe you, you have an integrity problem. So fix it. And just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just say it. You don't have to give all of the, you don't have to exaggerate. And again, if you're, if you're having to convince somebody that you're being serious this time or that you're telling the truth, that's not good. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Really, the thing that ties these together, it's what economy are you living out of? Are you living out of just in the, this world economy, or have you tapped in to God's economy? In this economy, this, you can't do this. It doesn't make sense. If I... If you hit me on my right cheek, then I hit you on your right cheek. That's fair. If I lend you my lawnmower, you lend me your weed eater. That's fair. If I love you, you love me. That's fair. If I don't, if you don't love me, I don't love you. That's fair. That's how things work if we've got a closed system here and everything's got to work between us. That's not how God works. The sun and the rain, that's common grace for everybody. People who love him and hate him, good and evil, people who obey and disobey, righteous, unrighteous. And as Christians, you tap in. We tap into that. The reason I can give you my tunic and my coat is because I don't expect you to give it back. God will give it back to me. He's the one that's going to repay me, not you. The reason I can go with you two miles is it has nothing to do with you. And whether you deserve it and whether you're going to return the favor, it has nothing to do. God will pay me back. You don't have to. I'm not looking to you to make good. And you're not looking to me to make good. God takes care of that. So I'm free just to love you. The reason I can love you if you hate me is because I don't care if you love me back. Because that doesn't validate me. God loves me. And he's my source, not you. And the same thing is true in the reverse. If I hate you, you can still love me. You don't need me to love you. God loves you. You don't need anything else. It's a different economy. You've opened up a whole new world of resources that we don't have just in this world. And that's what this thing is getting at. Whose world are you living in? Yours, where everything's got to kind of work here. It's zero sum and everything's got to work out. Or his, where the resources are infinite and there's always more. We talked about this last week. Whatever measure you use, it's going to come back. And I will say, you don't want to use fair because you don't want fair back. I definitely don't want fair back. And I don't think you want fair back either. We want grace. And we want mercy. That's a tapping into a different world of resources altogether. If that's what you show, then you're, you've tapped into the Lord and that's what you can receive. So that's what these two passages are about. The only way you can pull that off is if you release everyone here from making things right and making things fair and stop worrying about your rights and what you deserve, which is really hard to do. But that's the only way you can do this is recognize that it's not, up, it's not up to Misty, my wife, to 
make my life anything. That's, I love her and God takes care of me. And she loves me and God takes care of her. And that's how it works in all of our relationships. Y'all get that. We're going to pray. Bo, are you coming back up?